0: Hello, this is Jeff Otis, Senior Wealth Consultant and Partner at Evergreen GovCal, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoyed this 25-minute conversation between myself and Investment Committee Analyst, Gareman Howell. In that case, maybe we should call this one Two Coffees with Evergreen. Anyways, as always, thanks for listening.
1: Hey listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode.
0: All right. So today we're joined by Evergreen Investment Committee analyst Garman Howell. And Garman, thanks for being back with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're gonna get you started uh, right out of the gates here. We're getting a lot of questions from clients on the commodity space, just with inflation fears. And you know, that is a potential investment opportunity. Uh, can you give us in your view, like a high level overview of the commodity space? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. And it's it's one that's pretty easy to get into the weeds.
2: So I'll try to keep it as high level as I can, but essentially the way we look at commodities are kind of through three different buckets. Um, Obviously the energy space is kind of what I think people mostly think of as commodities, you know, so natural gas and oil. Um, The next bucket would be like uh, precious metals or metals in general. So gold, uh, aluminum, copper, all those. And then the third would be kind of an agricultural producing bucket. So energy I think is the one that's, you know, most talked about, at least in popular press, um, that's been kind of hotly contested as to how that will unfold. Um, Oil prices have recovered quite a bit from their kind of COVID trough. You know, a lot of that had to do with a kind of a basic supply and demand um, aspect. You know, when COVID hit, supply was gonna be way overabundant, Um, but what we're seeing is some pretty good uh, restraint on the production side of things. So, you know, what we could see is a pretty substantial and long-lived um, recovery of oil prices in general. Um, and across the world, um, you know, the caveat there is if oil prices rise too much, will producers say, well, you know, oil's is uh, way more expensive than it used to be. Why don't we just produce a bunch and, and flood the market again? So that's the only caveat there. But I think you know, in the next one to three years, oil prices will probably stay fairly elevated. Um, you know, they've, they've kind of paused a bit with renewed lockdowns in Canada um, and in Europe. Um, but I think long-term, you know, that's probably a, a good space to be in um, from an investment side of things. You know, and I'll throw out that a lot of the oil producers are getting more ESG focused. Um, you know, a lot of them are saying, you know, oil is, is not the, the perpetual future of energy production. Um, And so they're diversifying and and going green to an extent. And I think that's kind of the the biggest um, kind of tailwind there is over time, those guys will become kind of green energy producers versus just um, oil producers. Um, The second one, you know, kind of industrial metals and all that, that's obviously um, kind of dominated um, and pressed by gold. Um, And gold is often thought of as kind of like a, a store of wealth, um, and rightly so. Over, over history, um, that's been a pretty good place to be. Um, I think right now, industrial metals in general are going to be a really good place to to have money, and and a lot of that's you know a supply demand dynamic as well. Um, you know, as the economy reopens, inventories need to re- be be re- refilled, uh, and you're naturally going to see kind of an uptick in production. On the other side of that. Uh, inflation fears are kind of dominating uh presses right now and industrial metals are kind of a, a good way to, to hedge against inflation um you know those those guys are kind of at the beginning of supply chains so you really can't squeeze them from a price standpoint and that's kind of why investors look to that space um as an inflation hedge and then the last bucket in agriculture um you know that one's kind of a an interesting one you know when COVID hit, kind of a, the popular consensus opinion was that demand is going to disappear from out of the agriculture space. From that point on, supply was kind of halted, right? So producers stopped producing, uh, supply chains were frozen as a result of economic lockdowns. Um, and from then on, when people started restocking their pantries, eating at home or cooking at home, the demand side recovered, but the supply side really didn't. So, you know, we're seeing prices elevated across the board there, um, but that one will probably be kind of a more transitory um, price increase as you know the the overall economy, uh, restaurants and all that start to normalize. But again, you know, kind of like the other two buckets, we're seeing increased prices, and that's probably going to continue for a little bit. But I wouldn't expect that there's going to be a you know twenty dollar milk um, at any point in the in the foreseeable future, anyway.
0: Right, right. Well, it's an area that's getting a lot of attention, a lot of chatter, and I uh, appreciate your your uh, your oversight on all that, um, and just walking us through from your from your viewpoint what you see uh, in that landscape. So I'm going to detour a little bit uh, now that I got you. Uh, your role at Evergreen is as a as an analyst on our investment committee. I'm just thinking, listeners that are following along, whether they work with a wealth management firm like Evergreen or others. Uh, or, you know, potentially what we say, like independent expert or do-it-yourself investor at home doing their own analysis. I'm just curious if we could walk through like your process for evaluating investment opportunities, you know, whether whether you're a client listening or, you know, someone else, right? Like just curiosity around what does that look like? You know, if, if you're an analyst at a firm like Evergreen, kind of what does your day-to-day look like when you're evaluating investment opportunities? So walk us through that yeah absolutely it's it's a
2: it's a question that's hard to answer um without having someone actually walk you through it so it's a good question um you know at evergreen we're we're trying to be a very long-term kind of investor um making sure that we're you know tax efficient in how we invest um and kind of stay away from areas that are potentially a little shadier um you know from an investment standpoint. So, you know, there are a million different ways to to invest. I think it's a lot more of an art than a science than people expect, Um, at least, you know, unless you kind of dabble in it yourself. Um, But here at Evergreen, we really try to look at fundamentals of companies when we're evaluating an investment opportunity kind of from a company standpoint. But I think where it all starts is kind of the oversight and the general advice that we get from our CIO, Dave, He kind of looks at the macro picture and says, you know, here's kind of all the supply demand dynamics that I'm seeing. Here's, you know, what I think is going on from a macro perspective. And it's our job as analysts to really take that information and say, okay, here's what, you know, the world could look like in two to three years. Um, You know, what sectors are going to win in that kind of scenario? What companies are going to win within those sectors? And then we really kind of dive down into looking at each company. And kind of the first thing that we look at is, what does the company do, right? It sounds like a silly question, but, you know, a lot of times you think of, well, you know, this company is um, in the finance world. They probably just lend to to other people in finance. Well, that could be very different. They could lend to banks. They could lend to individual companies. They could lend to consumers. um, And each one of those has its own kind of uh, idiosyncrasies that you have to keep in mind when you're kind of evaluating the risk of a company. So that's kind of where I start. You know, what does the company do? Who are its customers? Who is its management team? Are they, you know, a trustworthy bunch or are they kind of opportunists that, you know, are looking to make a bunch of money and and leave in a, in a very short time span? And then the next Question I ask is: Is this company, you know, in a good standpoint financially? You know, consumers. We all have our own personal balance sheets. Companies have their own balance sheets as well. You know, our companies that we're looking at generally super levered. You know, do they have a lot of debt? Uh, we try to avoid those as much as we can because that comes with a lot of risk, right? You have to eventually pay that debt back. So, you know, the next step of the process is obviously looking at the balance sheet. You know, what's their debt level like? You know, do they have a lot of cash relative to their debt level? And debt in itself is not a bad thing. Um, you know, sometimes companies take on a lot of debt for a specific reason. And if that specific reason is good for their long-term success, then, yeah, that's it's not necessarily a bad thing. So you have to evaluate why do they have a lot of debt if they have it or why do they have very little debt? if they don't have it, right? Um, Some companies are very cyclical in nature. You know, we just talked about commodities. Those are, you know, very, very um, cyclical. So if oil prices are at an all-time high and a company has a lot of debt, uh, that's probably not the best thing um, because if oil prices take a fall, their overall balance sheet is looking a lot worse in a very short time span. So they really can't recover from that. Um, So that's kind of the second step, is evaluating the financial position and standing of the company um, and kind of getting an understanding of why that balance sheet looks the way it does. Um, And then the third kind of step would be to look at the sector or the industry that it's in. You know, is this blockbuster in 2008, right? Um, Is the sector basically going in a different direction than the company? Um, Is the company responding to the different dynamics in the sector and the industry? Um, or are they kind of stuck in the mud like Blockbuster saying, we're going to rent videos, and movies, and, you know, physical DVDs for the rest of time. Um, so, that, you know, getting an understanding of, of where the company sits in the industry and how it's kind of perceived by both investors and its customers, right? Um, is this a high quality operator? Uh, is this a really well-managed company? Or is this a company that has a reputation of, Kind of making wild bets and kind of rolling the dice. Um, that's that's an important aspect to keep in mind. And then the final step, I would say, is valuation. You know, valuation is important. But if you have a really good company with you know really good balance sheet and it's a high quality operator, it's probably going to trade a little bit more expensively versus its company its competitors. Um, but again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you have to have you know if you want a balanced portfolio. you want exposure to every single sector every single industry and it's kind of a shaky time for that sector for that industry you might want to go towards a high quality operator versus kind of a shaky one Um, so valuation is important you don't want to overpay for something Uh, i think that's a very big part of investing is making sure you're you're buying uh, something at the right price but overall you want to kind of stray towards the the cheaper side of things as i'm sure Everyone would expect on the more expensive side of things, um, and from there you kind of just you jot you down your notes from all those and say, you know, in three to five you know years, is this company probably going to be a winner or is it going to be a loser? And then from there, that's where the art kicks in is is kind of understanding how it might unfold and what the potential risks and your potential blind spots are. You know, um, making sure that you're not <laughs> infusing your bias. Too much into the into the investment itself. So, so I, I guess that's kind of a long-winded um, explanation. Um, if you have any questions on that, I'd, I'd love to to see where listeners might be more interested in.
0: Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful. Uh, it's funny you bring up Blockbuster. I mean, I probably single-handedly kept the Redmond, Washington Blockbuster in business between 1991 and 1996 by renting <laughs> every single WWW, uh, WWF video that they had multiple times. Uh, you know, in my in my youth. So I'm proud. I'm proud to say I was a big a big uh, supporter and customer. Uh, although I do miss them. Netflix has made life obviously far easier. Uh, if I was going to recap that in terms of what I heard, so, and tell me if I got this right, it seems to me like investment, like our our way of going about it, your way of going about it is identify investment themes that we believe in, evaluate, you know, in those themes companies that we that participate, right, uh, mm-hmm. that are participating in those themes, and then do like a peer by peer, I guess, about uh, you know, analysis of who's. Who's best in class, best of breed, not just on what they do, but the attractiveness of of their current stock price, right? Like something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good summary. So let's talk about that uh, in terms of evaluating them peer by peer. Like, w- let's talk about metrics that you look at. Uh, just as a follow up to this, so what are like what are specific metrics that you follow that we like? you know, kind of the secret sauce of Evergreen in terms of what, how we evaluate companies to get a, to get an idea of, of how attractive the company currently is priced at? Sure.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, metrics are an important part of that. You know, it's, it's a quick way to get a snapshot of a company versus its, its peers. You know, in terms of profitability, um, return on invested capital um, is a really important one, or ROIC, um, and that's essentially the return... That the company makes the net income that it has versus all of the invested capital so debt and equity so that gives a really good uh kind of picture of what the company earns based on what people have invested in it um so if it has a low roic it's probably not a very profitable business but again you know all these metrics similar to companies come in cycles so you have to take a, a look at not only you know roic Um, was very low this year, Uh, probably not a good business. Well, it's not a complete picture, right? So if they're in a down cycle, their ROAC is positive but low, but it's on the upswing, that's kind of a better picture of what the company is doing. Um, You know, return on equity and return on assets are also good ones for profitability. You know, return on equity, what is the return based on what people have invested in it, Um, what shareholders have invested in it? Um, Obviously, higher is better there as well. Return on assets is a good one to to kind of gauge the quality of the assets. You know, if you have a business with a low ROA, you know, return on assets, it could be a business that have a lot of assets on their balance sheet but really don't make much money off of it. So it's just kind of a bloated behemoth kind of stumbling around in the marketplace. Um, So those are kind of the the profitability metrics that we like to use. Um, In terms of making sure that the balance sheet is healthy, uh, we like to look at net debt. So total debt minus any cash that they have, um, essentially, and then we like to compare that to the cash flow generation of the company itself. You know, net income is is very important for a business, um, but when it comes to kind of leverage and the overall debt that a company has, cash flow is a little bit more important. Um, so we'll like to look at EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Um, and essentially, it's a proxy of what cash the ge- is actually generated by the business um, at any given moment. So we like to see if you know a company has a lot of debt, but they have even more cash flow generation. You know, every quarter, the debt's probably not as big of a worry. Um, obviously, there you have to make sure that the cash flow is sticky and not super volatile. Um, but that's kind of our our favorite metric in terms of leverage. Um, and then for valuation, you know. ED to EBITDA, so enterprise value, um, which is basically the market cap of the company, um, and you add any debt onto it. And that's kind of a, a proxy of what a company would be worth if it were to be taken over by someone else, right? What would you have to pay for the entire business versus a share? And you compare that to cash flow. So if you have a low ED to EBITDA, that business is generating a ton of cash versus what it's worth or what people think it's worth. Um, And from there, you kind of investigate, well, you know, does it deserve to trade that way? Right. Does it have a lot of cash flow, but, you know, maybe they're a tobacco producer and no one wants to be invested in tobacco? Or is it just kind of a a value play that people really haven't recognized yet? And then the last two for valuation, I would say price to sales, um, especially useful for cyclical companies. You know, a high price to sales is is kind of a, a warning sign that maybe that company is at the top of its cycle. And. The share price might be nearing or at a top and then for a kind of across the board um, metric for for valuation would be price to earnings, you know what does that company earn for every share of of stock right. Um, You know what does that business make in a year versus what people think it's worth right, so if a company has a, a PE of two people are willing to pay $2 for every $1 of net income for that company. Um, and, you know, and that can tell you a lot of things about, one, the company itself If it has a lot of earnings. That's great. But it also tells you the perception of the market on that stock itself. So, you know, a low PE might mean that the, the marketplace in general doesn't like it. Um, and you have to understand why that is and whether you agree with it or not. And That's kind of all these metrics really lead into a bunch of different questions that you have to ask yourself and kind of what you think of the company itself and whether you agree with the market or not.
0: I think that's really helpful. Uh, a couple a couple of things I'd like to highlight for a listener that's for listeners that are listening on this. I mean if you're hearing this and you're like wait a second. It sounds to me like Evergreen is doing in-house research, in-house analysis of individual companies, per, you know, for investment opportunities in their own strategies. The answer is yes, that's absolutely what we do. I mean it, so many investors out there Probably aren't even accustomed to working with money managers like like us that do it that way. I mean, so many money managers I shouldn't even say money managers. I mean, so many financial advisors now really just use funds, right? In their approach, they just outsource to third-party money managers, so clients get these uh, you know portfolios of mutual funds or, or or fund-based holdings, and that type of in-house research analysis isn't then happening, right? So that I mean, so I just would like to highlight. I think that's a competitive advantage for Evergreen. certainly something that I highlight as a value add from us. Uh, You know, the last part on that is if you're hearing terminology and you're like, oh, my gosh, like I kind of remember that term. That was like in a course I took in college that I flunked out of. Right. Like that was brutal. Like that's what we're here for. Right. Like I, I don't expect every listener to know and have the command of the space that you just described. But that's that's where we come in. Right. I mean, that's exactly what we do. So I think it's really helpful to go through that, even if for some, it is gonna potentially be somewhat confusing or a lot of terminology that they're unaccustomed to, but that's what we deal with day to day. So thank you for for going in uh, to the weeds on that for us. Um, I think that's probably good enough for today on that. I do have a follow-up question though. Uh, So let's say you have, and and then we're gonna go to bonus question. We're gonna wrap this up because I think we're running a little long, but I did not want to fast forward this one because this is really good uh, insight into what the role of an analyst is and, and what how that matters and how it impacts uh, clients uh, that we work with. So if you had a DeLorean and a flux capacitor, right, and could travel back in time uh, you know, for whatever it was, what was it? One pine mall to, to, and it came back to two pine malls or something like that, right? (laughs) Travel back in time. Uh, and you had a chance for a do over, uh, any investment that you, that you felt really good about, uh, but didn't pull the trigger on or were in and got out too early and, you know, wish you could, you had the magic wand to go back and have a do over. Anything jump to, jump to mind for you.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Good question. Um, you know, back when I first started investing, you know, personally, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to kind of pick a couple of winners. But, you know, looking back, I, I definitely didn't didn't uh, hold on to them long enough um, kind of the two that jump out of me are Caterpillar, uh, you know, the tractor uh, bulldozer manufacturer. Um, I bought them way back when um, when they were kind of sub seventy dollars a share. Um they're now over $230 a share. So a pretty big increase over just a few years. Um and then the other's Microsoft, um, which I'm really picking myself, you know, from the Seattle area, you should have I should have held on a little bit longer. But that one I also have the opportunity to to buy um kind of around the forty dollar mark. And that one again, that one's up over two hundred dollars, um, two hundred and fifty dollars as of today. So both of them ended up being winners. I just uh, didn't have the courage of my convictions, I guess, and didn't hold on long enough. So I guess that's kind of a, a pitch for for understanding why you bought something and believing it and holding on for the long term, because that's that's generally how you kind of compound wealth. This is kind of over the long term. So uh, those two, I keep myself uh, pretty regularly, so.
0: It's like it's yeah. like for the ga- the gamblers in the crowd right they always remember their bad beat you know the one that they wish they you know so anyways uh, always helpful to hear insights on we're gonna wrap up with a bonus question uh, governor inslee at least here in the state of Washington is now making it so the vaccines are widely available to everyone who's 16 and up uh, I think at April 15th um, and so we're really close to a, a, you know a different world a more fully vaccinated world so as you look forward to the summer, hopefully things really reopening uh you know is, is there a place that you're excited to travel to looking forward to, to uh getting off to this summer
2: yeah absolutely no i uh, actually moved in the middle of the pandemic so i really haven't traveled much um uh, you know as with everyone but the i drove across the country to to move myself um and national parks were actually closed um largely anyway um as i was doing that so i really want to go back um you know, to, to the Yellowstone Park, um, that's one area of the country that I haven't been fortunate enough to visit yet. And that's one I was hoping to visit while I moved. But obviously the pandemic had different plans. So, you know, I'm hoping to make it out to, to Yellowstone National Park this summer. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed that we're able to reopen um, in time. If not, there's there's other years and we'll make it through it.
0: Man, that would be awesome, though. I hope you're able to get out there. And as, as we're wrapping up here, I just remembered, I think they started with Two Pines Mall and came back to One Pine Mall <laughs> after the after the DeLorean drove through the other one, right? So anyways, I appreciate you being here. You never know where this is going to go. We had Blockbuster, we had Back to the Future, all that unexpectedly <laughs> here in uh, in Coffee with Evergreen. So we'll do it again. Thanks for your time, Garmin. Yeah, thanks for having me, go.
1: Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.